Our text this morning comes from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. The, the birth and the, the, uh, the results of that birth of John the Baptist. Uh, before I read the passage and, and uh, we, we look at it more closely, let us go to the Lord in prayer that he would bless the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would give us the same Holy Spirit that you gave unto Luke, who wrote this gospel for us, who gave us these words for our infallible instruction, that we might know you, and that we might know our redemption in Christ Jesus, and that we might have the remission of sins. And we ask, dear Lord, that we would indeed Uh, by giving attentive ear to your word this morning, know better and more closely our Savior. And we ask that we would return unto him uh, that joy and gratitude, that we might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness all the days of our lives unto eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had shown great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. And they said unto her, There is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. And they made signs unto his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled all. And his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke and praised God. And fear came on all that dwelt round about them. And all these sayings were noised abroad throughout the hill country of Judea. And all that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us, in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And then thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit 
and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever, and his people said, Amen. Amen. We have here, as, as mentioned before, the birth of John the Baptist, John the forerunner. And this was uh, a, a marvel, marvelous and remarkable occasion. Uh, we see several different cultural interesting things uh, that might inform our own behavior and, and the way in the world. Uh, we note that uh, the people, when they came to circumcise uh, John, uh, were under the assumption that he would be named after his father and were a bit taken back when Elizabeth corrected them. And, and as it were in that day, um, perhaps probably not in today's day, but it's certainly in that day, uh, they were going to make sure that, that Elizabeth wasn't um, taking advantage of her, father, of her husband's muteness and asked him what he thought. And of course he wrote that his name would be John because that is exactly what the angel had told him to name him. And John uh, Zacharias, while... He may have doubted uh, at the first enunciation of the, his son, had learned his lesson now, and was not going to deviate uh, from the will of the Lord. And as soon as, as that was determined upon, uh, his mouth was loosed that he might praise the Lord. And instead of, of slurking out with resentment, the Lord had struck him with de- uh, muteness, Uh, For the last nine months or so, uh, he turns his voice to praise. And probably, uh, though the ordering is such because of the things that Luke wants to say, we get it after the fact. Nevertheless, the content of that praise is what we have most likely in verses 68 through 79. Uh, This would be all the more remarkable uh, to the people gathered. This miracle of the loosed tongue, which would recall the miracle of the the muted tongue. And then to come with it, the clear prophecy uh, given from the priest Zacharias would be certainly something noised abroad in the high country of Judea. And we're told in uh, verses 66 that they took them, laid them in their hearts and cherished them and pondered them. Uh, we're told by Luke that this only, one other person does this. And in the birth of Jesus Christ, it's not the crowds and it's not the, the neighbors. It's his mother. Uh, we get another contrast between John the Baptist coming into the world and Jesus' coming into the world. One was well, notable and famous. Uh, we don't really think of it as notable and famous because we don't really celebrate it the same way we celebrate the one that was hidden Revealed to shepherds, certainly, and to foreign uh, magi, absolutely. But by and large, one that was uh, only remarked and cherished and remembered, uh, by at least into the day of Luke, by his mother. I think Luke uses this language in both places, though, to indicate that, that he is writing from sources. Uh, that he is getting his details from people who were there. Uh, that this is, these are cherished memories uh, that have been handed down carefully. Uh, not that long. I mean, Luke is a, a contemporary, uh, a younger contemporary, certainly, but a contemporary of, of many of these people. Zacharias and Elizabeth most certainly were dead uh, by the time uh, even John the Baptist starts his ministry. 
They were old even when he was born. Uh, and, and John the Baptist himself was dead uh, before Christ was crucified. Uh, so, but, but there were many that were there when he was brought forth into the world and remembered and noted his career. And that is, is the, 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 the point that, that Luke is pointing to us, that this prophecy, these words of Zechariah are, are filled with uh, importance for the gospel. And indeed, as we look at it, because this is what we want to focus on this morning, is verses 68 through 79, the song of Zechariah that is given by a prophecy of the Holy Ghost. And it is, we should mark, a praise unto God, not so much for His Son, but for what His Son is coming before. It is a praise unto the Lord, to the Messiah. We see this certainly in verse 69, where He says, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. Zacharias, John the Baptist, were not in the house of His servant David. They were Levites. They were priests. Uh, John the Baptist is a priest by birth. Whether he ever exercised the office is doubtful. Uh, but he had the rights of priesthood. Uh, this was of the house of Levi. Zacharias knows full well that his son is going before the Messiah. And he knows that the Messiah comes out of the house of David. And he is giving praise to the fulfillment of his promises. His son is cherished by Zacharias. We have no reason to think that uh, John the Baptist wasn't dearly loved by Zacharias and Elizabeth. But they knew why he was given. And just like Hannah, who loved her son Samuel, because in her old age, she, well, in her barrenness, she brought forth a child from the Lord's mercy, and she gave that child right back to the Lord for his ministry. So Zacharias and Elizabeth understand that this child is not for their comfort, because to be honest, in their old age, uh, the child would probably be more of a burden but was given for the fulfillment of covenant promises. And he was to be great. And he was uh, great only because he was a harbinger of something greater, which is Jesus Christ. And so Zacharias praises the Lord's mercy and salvation and focuses on Christ. And we, from this psalm at the birth of John the Baptist, learn a great deal about our Savior who would be born Roughly uh, six months later, because that's the enunciations are six months apart, as we saw uh, with um, uh, Mary and Elizabeth. So let's look at this in verses 68 through 70. uh, We get Christ is magnified as the the power of salvation. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he hath visited and redeemed his people. He hath purchased them and ransomed his people and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he had spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which had been since the world began. He has remembered his covenant and his attentions, not that he ever forgot them, but oftentimes in Scripture when the Lord has not done what he has said for a long time, and he comes to bring it to pass, that is, pictured to us as the Lord remembering his promises and bringing them to pass. And... In this description, Jesus is focused on as Savior in a particular way, as King and Conqueror. 
Uh, early in the, uh, the Gospel of Luke, the emphasis upon Jesus Christ is in his, not because his Messiahship goes with three offices. We prophet, we speak of him as priest, we speak of him as king. And all three are anointed offices. All three make him the Christ. Uh, but particularly, it is in his reign as king uh, that, that Israel looked for him because they were under oppression. Now, they were under oppression by, by their own uh, uh, works. Uh, the, the oppression that the prophets often brought to bear upon Israel was the oppression of their own sin and iniquity. Uh, that they, even within the house of David, were often the afflictors of Israel. But it's certainly also the case that they were afflicted by those outside. And, and so uh, the imagery and the desires and the heart of the people set upon the Messiah was set upon as a deliverer. And the great picture of salvation that is even brought forward into the New Testament, the model that, that is the type, the pattern that show us so much about the gospel is the exodus in which Israel was delivered from oppression. And so when Zacharias comes to praise the Messiah, he uses the term the horn of salvation. The horn, the power, the offensive weapon of salvation, uh, that which shows his might and his uh, potency and his ability to accomplish what he sets out to do. And we see in verses 71 and, and even 74 that that's exactly the context that Zechariah is thinking that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. That he would grant unto us, verse 74, that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness, righteousness before him all the days of our life. Which shows also that when Zacharias is speaking of enemies, he's not thinking of uh, Herod, uh, the Edomite kingdom. He's not thinking of Rome, which, was, which held Herod's puppet strings. Uh, he was not thinking of the worldly misery in which, or at least the political misery in which Israel uh, was, but he's speaking of her spiritual misery. Uh, this is a man that was noted for his godliness and holiness. And we might think that, would, well, weren't all priests noted for their godliness and holiness? No. Uh, we're told specifically uh, that the Sanhedrin, those that held the the, the high priesthood were known for their worldliness. That they didn't think that there was a spiritual reality. They were, uh, which is unique in the ancient world, they were materialists. And, and believed that uh, after the, the material blessings, that there were no blessings from God. Uh, they were compromisers with the oppression, and they themselves were oppressors. And these are the things that Zacharias has in mind, that there is a lack of holiness where there ought to be holiness. And there was no righteousness in the, the tribes, the kingdom, the nation of the world, which should have been holy. There was a great deal of fear. And there were a great many enemies. And those enemies were marked by darkness and death. 
to give light to them, verse 79, and he's speaking again of the Messiah because he says in verse 78, there the day spring from on high hath visited us, that is the son of righteousness, Malachi 4, uh, that is the Christ, to give light to them that sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So he's viewing our situation as one in which we are in bondage, one in which we are oppressed, This oppression comes from the outside, but also from the inside. And this oppression has its corrosive effects upon the hearts of mankind. Just as Israel in slavery in Egypt had grown to love the flesh pots of Egypt. And when they were given that liberty to worship God as He requires on Mount Sinai, they hungered and lusted after their bondage. Even so, though we are under the power of Satan, often give our heart to that bondage. Certainly not to the point that we call ourselves after the name of the one who has us in bondage. Uh, Certainly not that the world outside, well, mostly, uh, doesn't acknowledge Satan as their Lord and Master. Rather, we often wish that we were our own Lord and Master. And would have neither Satan nor God to reign over us. But that itself is a bondage. And it's a bondage into this, uh, this, the, the powers of darkness. It is a bondage unto uh, the, the spirit of wickedness. If you ever, and don't really show too much curiosity, but in the church of Satan, uh, they don't acknowledge the existence of Satan. It is enough that they, that they magnify his spirit of rebellion against God. That they have no heavenly authority. But that's bondage. That's still a bondage. And at least they're honest enough to, to, to acknowledge it. That even if they don't believe in their God, they, they have bound themselves to him. Not in the true God. But in the God of darkness and death nonetheless. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul speaks how we even ourselves to this day are in conflict with principalities and powers that are not of this world. In verse 12 of chapter 6, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And as such, we need the horn of our the horn of salvation to come to us. In Psalm 132, where the language is taken, the Lord has sworn unto David, sworn in truth unto David, he will not turn from it. Out of the fruit of thy body will I set up thy throne. Thy children keep my covenant, my testimony, that I shall teach them. Their children shall also sit upon the throne forevermore. But that had not been the case because they had not kept the covenant. But the Lord nevertheless has chosen Zion. And he has desired her for his habitation. And this is my rest forever. And here will I dwell, for I have desired her, saith the Lord. I will abundantly bless her provisions and satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation and her saints shall shout for joy. And here are the blessings, the spiritual blessings of our salvation. But note that there is an enmity there. Therefore will I make the horn of David the bud. I have ordained a lamp. That is, to shine in the darkness for my anointed. His enemies will I clothe with shame. Upon himself, though, 
shall his crown flourish. There is, there is a deliverance for the people, and that's why the language of the horn of salvation is used. In Isaiah 52, verses 9 and 10, Break forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people, and he hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm, another symbol of strength, in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. When we speak of salvation, we're speaking of rescuing. We're speaking of deliverance. We're speaking of, 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 of going in and making war against oppressors to bring forth into liberty the children of God. That is the biblical image of salvation. It is martial imagery. It is, it is the language of conflict because there really is a conflict. It's metaphorical, yes, but the metaphor is not weaker than the reality. Uh, we use the metaphor, uh, well, the reality is stronger than the metaphor in this case. We use, because we have nothing else to compare it to, the metaphor of human warfare and human oppression and, and human uh, misery. But that's because the spiritual realities behind such things are worse than human warfare. It is more dangerous and uh, much more effort to go in and to rescue a people from their bondage that they themselves brought them unto. And we read in Isaiah 9, verse 2, the people that have sat in darkness have seen a great light. We were in a darkness that we have brought upon ourselves. And we needed that power, we needed that light to, to shine upon us, which we could not generate. So he comes to save us from our enemies. And he saves us with this purpose, uh, that we might serve him without fear all our days. Verse 74 and 75. He would grant us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. The Lord seeks those to serve him, to worship him, to reverence him, because he is... Uh, the King of Glory is the one that, that has all the, 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 the merit of glory. Uh, God glorifies himself because it is right for him to glorify himself. Uh, when we speak in the catechism, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Uh, but, but the virtue of glorifying God is because he is the glorious one. And, and in truth, he has to give glory. God himself, what is the chief end of God? Uh, we might... Paul's a little bit speaking it in that direct way, but it's certainly to give glory unto God and enjoy Him forever. That's what God does. He brings glory unto Himself. Now, He brings glory to Himself, not in a selfish way, in a tyrannical way, but He brings glory to Himself in mercy and grace and the overflow and the generosity of creation and the overflow and the goodness and righteousness of providence and the overflow in mercy and redemption that we have in redemption where justice and mercy kiss together upon the cross of Christ where sin is punished and sinners are delivered. These things all bring glory to Him. But in that glory is that those who are gathered to Himself are also like He is, holy and righteous. Holy and righteous and without fear. Not all the days of their life, 
But remember, when we're speaking spiritually, all the days of our life is all our days into eternity. Because that's where that life we have in Christ goes. It is an eternal and everlasting life. Uh, Holiness and righteousness is the goal of God's mercy to us. And we see this in, in all throughout Scripture. In Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who have blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. And we get there the freeness of salvation. And the fact that it's not by our works, it's by the work of God. It's not without works entirely, because God himself comes in the flesh of Christ. And it's his obedience that is imputed to us for obedience. And it is his sacrifice that is imputed to us for righteousness on behalf of sin. And yet all these things this free that we freely receive from him are designed to make us holy. To create in us, not merit at least to create in us uh, that godliness that we could not ourselves attain to. Uh, We're not saved by holiness. We're saved unto holiness. And so our liberty for sin is a liberty in such a way that causes us to turn from it. And if we're not turning from it, we don't know that salvation that is being given because that's how it's offered to us. It's offered to us to make us holy, uh, to make us without blame before him in love. Uh, This we also see in Titus 2, 11. uh, This is pronounced at the end of every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. For the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying godliness, ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us freely as a gift, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous for good works. As a people of the gospel and of grace, we shouldn't ever turn our nose up at the notion of good works, but we put them in their place. They are the results of salvation, not the way to salvation. But God has delivered us that we might not be in bondage anymore to our enemies, but that we might live in the glorious liberty of the children of God. And that we do, might do so without fear, without fear of condemnation because our our, our, our service to the Lord is, is faulty and mixed motive and not perfect. But nevertheless, we do not fear before the Lord because Christ is our perfect substitute. And we are without fear of the enemy because Satan has been crushed under the feet of Jesus Christ. So we, we, can fear all the, we, we don't fear those that destroy the body, but who have power to destroy both body and soul in hell we look upon our lord god and we think if god is for us and we know he is in jesus christ who then can be against us so we 
We, we serve him without fear of condemnation. We serve him without fear of the enemy. We serve him uh, without fear of falling short. Because God is faithful to complete that which he has begun in us. In effect, we serve him without fear because in him we have perfect peace. Because he is to guide our feet into the way of peace. It's verse 79. And that is... Christ's power unto salvation. Christ's power is a power to deliver, to show mercy, uh, to bring us into holiness. And Christ's power is made known then primarily in mercy. When Zacharias turns to his son and pronounces the blessing upon him, or at least his work, he's still thinking of Christ and what God is doing even in his son. And the focus is simply making known what he has already said about the Messiah. Then thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. And Christ is declared to be the face of the Lord here. Uh, We know the Father through Jesus Christ and him alone. To give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. We see to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, verse 77. Uh, this, is, uh, this goes back to that serve him without fear. We don't know God's mercy until we know him as one who delivers us. There is no serving God or right unless we understand that our sins have been remitted. There's no false sort of humility that says, I will seek God even though he will condemn me. No, we never will love God properly until we know him as the one who forgives our sins. So as soon as we see God's glory, we also have to perceive his mercy or we will not love him because we will see him as the one who will condemn and ruin us. Because that's what we deserve. And so just as we see the might of the deliverer, we also see the mercy of the deliverer. No one understands salvation without forgiveness of sins. That's That is the the point of many statements in the gospel. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. In other words, no one can hear the call of Christ unless they see themselves as a sinner. And then they can perceive the marvelous riches of Christ. We see this demonstrated in the rich young ruler who comes thinking that he has kept the whole law. And has done nothing wrong. And can't perceive... That he falls short. And it's why Jesus has withheld the tenth commandment from him until the very last. It says, go, sell what you have and give to the poor. And he goes away sorrowful. Because he would have God as long as he could also have his great possessions. He could have God as long as God is one that agrees with him. About his righteousness. But to see himself as a sinner was too much. And he goes away and Jesus doesn't go running after him. Jesus lets him to his own self-sufficiency find his own salvation of which there is none. 
We don't understand salvation unless we understand forgiveness of sins, which we cannot understand unless we see ourselves as sinners. And here it is, this is our great problem and obstacle. This is one of the great enemies of darkness that weighs upon us. Here is the burden of conscience. If we still are, are pondering ourselves as sinners without any remedy, we won't go to the Lord because we'll be ashamed to. Uh, here is the snare. There's that one sin that we keep running back to and we don't want to be delivered from it. Here is that barrier unto God that, that causes us to pray half-heartedly or with abstraction so that we don't really get into the messiness of our own hearts and therefore we don't really get to understand and participate in the great blessings of communion with God in prayer. But when all this is remitted and taken away and we believe it and know it to be the case, looking unto Jesus Christ, then all those things fall away and we can know our salvation in Jesus Christ because we know our Savior. It's known also by his covenant mercies and faithfulness. One of the constant refrains of Zacharias is a remembering of the covenant to perform in verse 72, the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant. And Zacharias doesn't trace it back to Moses. He traces it all the way back to Abraham to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, uh, the oath which he swore unto our father Abraham. It's a reference to it in verse 78, through the tender mercies of our Lord, for that's where his mercies come from. His promise to be generous and merciful to us. He comes to us. We don't have to climb. We, in fact, we cannot climb and will not climb uh, some holy mountain in order to reach God. We will not uh, seek that nirvana or enlightenment of ourselves in God. We ha- he has to come to us. We have to be born again before we can live unto him. And that birth comes from his Holy Spirit. But those promises are certain. And he traces it back to Abraham because that's where God uh, solidified the promise in, in Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. Because God uh, would swear and make his promise certain. He enters into that covenant so that by two things, the fact that God cannot tell a lie and B, that he is promised. Passively, just his very nature, we can trust. Actively, we trust his promises. And they're certain and they're fulfilled in Christ. And this is who Zacharias praises as coming into the world, that his son is there to, as a forerunner and a harbinger and a messenger. We learn several things from this to know our Savior properly. That Christ has not saved those that he, where he does not reign. The first images of Zacharias is of a king and of his reign in our hearts. Uh, that he will come uh, in the house of David and sit on that everlasting throne. And where he does not sit on the throne of the heart, he has not saved. Uh, You are either in bondage to Satan, to sin, or you have been liberated and free unto holiness. There is no in-between. And service to him is not bondage. You know, the way of the world is to describe uh, the things of God with negative sort of words. 
goody two shoes, holier than thou. He is no earthly, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. These are slanders and snares upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they are lies of the devil. And if you give heed to them, you yourself will be ensnared. Hopefully, not forever, and hopefully you will be delivered. Because service to him is not bondage, it's casting off bondage. It's casting off darkness to walk in light. It's casting off the fear of man and the fear of the devil so that we might have that holy fear that is without terror, the love of God. It is to cast off that which would beset us and bring us into the bondage of superstition and worry and anxiety that there might not be any obstacle to holiness, righteousness, justice, goodness, and truth. Against such, there is no law. And that is true freedom. In Acts 26, verse 18, Paul describes the mission that Christ gave Paul to open their eyes and uh, to turn them from darkness to light. From the power of Satan, not unto a no power, but unto God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me, that is Christ. This is the liberty that has been purchased for us. But it is a purchase for us in service unto him uh, that is our chief reign. When our forefathers threw off the yoke and tyranny of George... Uh, the third king of England. It wasn't to be anarchist. It was to have a governed liberty. And, and liberty is always considered to be one of those things that is governed. And governed to good. And, and that is what we have in Jesus Christ. But secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, Christ is not known where he is not loved for his deliverance. He delivers us from sin, and we have to know him as one who remits us from sin if we know him at all. He has done great things for you, and he has given you liberty and eternal life. But unless you have experienced the joy of the remission of sins, this doesn't sound like liberty. Because Satan will tell you sin is liberty. Satan will tell you that sin is freedom. Satan will tell you that doing your own will is what brings you joy and happiness. Even though ever since you were a child, getting what you want has been disappointment. Everything you ask for Christmas, joy for the moment, bored with it two weeks later. And this is true. Grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And when you uh, quit one job to go to the other job, all of a sudden the miseries of that new job come, become evident. Your experience tells you what God has told you time and time again. That your will, without His guidance, is darkness. And yet we, turn, we like the message of Satan. And without evidence we turn to it. But the remission of sins, which doesn't just mean sins are remitted, but also that their power is taken away and we don't commit them anymore, is the great joy and liberty and bounty 
that we have in the power of Jesus Christ, that we have in the horn of our salvation, by whom our enemies are defeated, and by whom we are satisfied to the end of our days, which shall never end in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you again this morning, and we beseech you for the sure mercies of Jesus Christ, and that covenant that you have made from the beginning of the world to deliver us from our sin. We ask that we would indeed be delivered, that we might render unto you without fear holy and righteous service. We ask, Father, that we would stand before you all the days of our life and to eternity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.